UK Motor Talk. Well, good evening, good afternoon, good morning, or whatever it is when you're listening to us. We are back, and I just want to apologise off the bat, because we were supposed to record last week, and we didn't, and it was my fault. So I'm sorry about that. If you've missed us, if you were looking for us everywhere, thinking, you know, like a lost cat or something, I am sorry. That was my fault. Just to check, was the operation a, a success? Was it successfully removed? Yes, yes, it's all gone and it's been relocated. So, um, so that's excellent. Fun. Excellent. We, Good we news. Can, we can move on quite happily and not uh, and not worry about that ever again, or indeed mention it. Last week we were talking Maserati, weren't we? Now, Dave, you've got the information now, haven't you? Yeah, I've been looking up online. I've been doing research like a real grown-up and everything. It's uh, Yeah, it's very interesting. The MC20 Maserati have um, let loose with their press release and have been gushing in their praise for their new thing, and rightly so, because it looks like an amazing thing. They're very proud of the I fact that it's gushing. made... Well, absolutely. I'd be, I'd be gushing cash if I had it, because I think I'd probably have one. It looks right. It sounds right, from what I can tell. It's 100% made in Italy, 100% made in Modena. They're very at uh, great pains to point out. It's got a brand new engine, first one for Maserati in a long time. 630 horsepower, V6, and it will do 0-60 or 0-100 kilometres per hour if you're listening in metric. 2.9 seconds, top speed of 201 miles an hour, which is 325 kilometres an hour. And it basically weighs about one and a half tonnes. So you can see it's going to be pretty quick. I think my favourite stat in all that is the uh, is the top speed. Not 200, because 200 doesn't quite cut it these days. 201 <laughs> has to be 201. One faster. I think this, the weight of it is actually pretty impressive. Do you think how much a car weighs these days? You think a normal family hatchback, and they're at least in the 14s now, aren't they? They're quite heavy bits of kit. And when you think something like yeah. that, that is, that's a lightweight, really. Well, it's got a um, power-to-weight ratio of 2.33 kilos per horsepower. And unfortunately, I didn't do the uh, demetrication on that one, so uh, feel free to fire up your calculators. But uh, it's a lot for a lot, basically. There's not a lot to be moved around, and there's a lot to do it. So uh, it's going to shift this thing. What was Colin Chapman's mantra? Build in lightness. Add lightness, yes. That was it. If you know what that calculation is, by all means, write to us at UK Motor Talk Towers, PO Box, whatever it is, or indeed <laughs> tweet us at UK Motor Talk or Instagram or whatever you want to do with a picture of your calculator. And as long as it doesn't just say boobies or something, because we can all do that. Uh, it is still funny, but we can all still do that. Back to the Maserati. Yeah, the the, the other major stats there at the... Um... The combined fuel consumption, if you're so inclined, if you're buying one of these for fuel consumption, you're not really in the right uh, market. But it will do on the combined cycle on under WLTC regulations, uh, 25 miles to the gallon, which if you want it in uh, new money, 11.6 kilometres per litre or litres per kilometre. I can never work out which way around. But it'll do. I've never understood that. I've never been able to visualise that. If I press a button on the dash in my car, it does the instant calculation, but I just there's no point really, is there? Life's too short. But it'll do naught to 200 kilometres an hour, which is a nice round number in miles per hour, in uh, 0 to 120 miles an hour, 8.8 seconds or less. 
So, Whoa. yeah, not hanging about. It's got a lot of power. It's not a lot to shift, as I say. And it's basically, I think all you're going to see of it is the rather shapely rear, rear end of the thing, which I think we discussed sort of fleetingly at the end of last time. Was it, was it was a little bit generic, a little bit Audi, a little bit something else. But the more I've seen of it, and I've seen more pictures now, obviously Maserati have released more it's it's really grown on me it's it's only a little thing too it's it's quite tiny mm. see i i think certain cars look bigger in pictures and this is definitely true of of supercars some some you go up to you think really and it looks tiny and i think alphas do this as well when you look at something like the 4c or 8c much much smaller mm. in real life than you think that it's ever going to be but really desperately pretty and i Although we say there's lots of bits of other cars in the Mazda, none of them are ugly cars, let's face it, aren't they? If you're going to take different elements, I think that is a good-looking a good, you know, a good car off the bat. It's going to be quick. It's going to sound fantastic. It's relatively traditional, isn't it, in terms of what it is. It's not um, you know, a hyper-electric car. Nope. It's um, quite good that you were sort of t- talking about the 4C there because there's more than a little bit of that in the side vents, if you look. it's They did actually use a 4C as a, as a mule for running around when they were doing uh, engineering tests, and it only taken them 24 months to get this thing from the drawing board to taking orders for it, which they started doing on the 9th of September. So I don't know if anyone's got their order in yet, but uh, form an orderly hmm. queue here. I was waiting for a invite to the launch and to uh, to drive it as soon as it's available but i presume that's a uh, lost in the post i'm not sure i uh, put it down to covid jim yeah, i've i've put a deposit on the clock as i mentioned last week i'm a bit of a fan of maserati clocks but uh, by, by way of competition did anybody see the launch this week of the uh, ferrari amologato which is a one-off one european client has designed uh, with ferrari's engineers and designers his own ferrari Two million pounds sterling, and there's only going to be one. I kind of think that's not bad, actually. I don't think that's bad value for a car which is absolutely unique. But what what draws me to mention it, David, was you saying about uh, the Maserati looking like it's got all of the antecedents sort of built into one. It, this is exactly the same with the Ferrari Malagato. If you look at look yeah. at some pictures of that, and and you can see every Ferrari from. The sort of two, the original two hundred and fifty GTO onwards, is in there somewhere. It's a, it's a bit of a part special, I think. But it looks it looks absolutely wonderful. I can see Daytona in it definitely. The um, certainly the sort of cab back, long bonnet type look. It's not yeah. too bad actually, from what I can. I only got one picture. I'm going to see if there's any more. Well, that's all I've seen so far. No, no, that's not true. I think I've seen three, uh, and it looked it looked just glorious from any angle. Do we know who the um, the lucky owner of this vehicle is? Any no, rumours? Any ideas? No, no, no. It does say it's a it's a a European businessman. I think it said in the press. Uh, so does so. well. So if we keep an eye and uh, and if early part of next year it's they're not European anymore, then maybe mm. they're British. But beyond that, who knows? So I'm not uh, not sure. Maybe the number seven on the uh, on the front of the side is is that Kimmy's? Although you would have thought. He's probably got his fill of them by now, and um, I'm, not, I'm not sure that's uh, that's Kimmy's style to do that. Seven, of course, being his uh, his race number, or uh, the owner of Amalgato watches, maybe. Well, perhaps uh, Sebastian decided that not being able to afford uh, 
Michael Schumacher's race car, as he stated quite recently. Uh, perhaps he's bought this instead. Well, as I, a, I, possibly, as a booby but prize. Though, although I think as uh, the minute that uh, that Sebastian hops out of a Ferrari, I don't think he'll ever feel the urge to get in one again, uh, given how uh, how this year is going. Uh, yeah, quite well, so. Yeah, I, quite I don't so. think his new employers, Aston Martin, would be uh, would be too keen on him driving around in one. But uh, talking of Aston Gates, yes. Well, and actually, <laughs> <laughs> I was say Formula One drivers don't drive fast cars, do they? Unless they're Lewis Hamilton, they will drive things at Audi all roads. But yes, I, d- I don't. I don't think Lewis drives any of his cars anymore. I think they're all parked up because they emit too much CO two. Well, yeah, he drove a Bugatti, didn't he, for for quite a while. Hmm. Um, anywho. Back to the Aston. So, yes, unique sort of one-off cars. Someone has created a car called an Aston Martin Victor, which it follows on with the V theme, which is fine. Apart from the fact I used to know an old boy named Victor. And I'm, I wouldn't be able to, to go out and look at the car without thinking of him. Um, he looked a, a bit like Woody Allen, to be honest. But anyway, um, it is a 177 that's been made to look kind of like an updated version of the old Vantages. Uh, the racing advantages um, from the 70s and 80s. And I think it's one of these where it's a bit divisive because, yes, mm. I kind of get what they're doing. It's a little bit Mustang maybe at the front but with the big fish mouth grill that they seem to be putting on a lot of their cars right now. I'm not sure I would describe it as pretty, but nevertheless, pretty cool. Um, there is one thing about it, though. It does have a 7.3-litre V12 with 836 horsepower. That should do, shouldn't it? Yeah, that should be yeah, enough. <laughs> yeah, and... Non-turbo as well, it says. Non-turbo and manual. So <laughs> I think that's going to be one hell of a handful. But what great fun. I just really hope it gets used. I think the clutch for that, they recycled from a Concorde. <laughs> <laughs> it would need to be something pretty impressive, wouldn't it? It's a bit of a chest wig car, this, isn't it? Good evening, ladies. Captain Thrust has landed. I am amongst you. It's <laughs> brutish. Brutish. I mean, just looking at the back of it, that's got one hell of a diffuser as well. Which And the body kit looks like it's stuck underneath. It's divisive is probably the word isn't it mm. it's it's not um not not pretty but it you can see what they're doing and i'm glad they've done it because lord knows muscular. cars are boring looking muscular very very rippling rippling with mm. testosterone it looks it looks a little bit like some of the uh lister jaguars from the 70s you know yes. that were just body kitted so much that you could barely recognize what the <laughs> body car was it was all body kit and no car, but they were very quick. Am I alone in thinking there's a bit of a ground effect vibe to it as well? A little bit, yeah. Yeah. I th- I, I, cool. Nevertheless, if you haven't seen it, pop onto the website, have a look. Sitting on that, that shingle drive makes me think it's not a car you'd want to drive over shingle at speed. You know, it's going <laughs> to suck. It's going to suck all the shingle off, off any road or path or track that it's driven on and... Uh, Basically, hammer the underside with it. There's so much ground effect there. I'm going to skip back just a moment because why not? Maseratis. I was pleasantly surprised by how obtainable some of these cars are. And I say obtainable because there's the cost of buying something, then there's the cost of running something. Mm. And this is a almost unpronounceable blibli, which I think is a, a, a really beautiful looking car. Really nice looking Ford or Saloon. If you want a, a car to be able to move people and things around, then it is a very pretty car. And I hadn't realised that these have got to sub-20 grand territory until I 
got off of one for around about 23 and it wasn't particularly old but there were two things about this firstly apparently i'd be an outsider to maserati owners secondly i'd imagine it'd be ruinously expensive to own am i right yes I in both cases <laughs> I must tell you my story of uh, many, many years ago, I lived in the Hampshire village, which is quite notorious for having a hairpin down into it. It was a steep valley. Um, a hairpin down into it, and uh, or a series of hairpins down into it. It's almost alpine. And uh, ditto uh, out of it, and then it turned right across a bridge and went off towards Winchester. But there was a guy, I used to hear him coming if I was sort of out in the garden or something. And he had a 60s Maserati 3500, and it was a wonderful sound. And you, you could hear him wind it down through this sort of alpine pass into the village and then wind it back up again. You know, it, it comes screaming through the village and then wind it back up again at the other end of the village, and it was just the most glorious sound. I miss cars making noise at all. I was stood uh, outside the other day, and a Morris Minor drove past me. Not particularly exciting, Um a series engine so it's a relatively distinctive noise but you kind of forget that cars used to make noise when they drove past you and i don't know if this sounds really bizarre to say but you could you could even standard cars you could you could hear what they were i mean if you were a geek like me you could probably hear what they were coming and know what they were before they arrived and cars don't make noise at all anymore unless they are something that's really exciting in which case they probably have a valve that turns the noise off as well well, they're famous, the Moggy Miners, for making that sort of fart on the overrun, aren't they? And it's only certain engines that do it. And my friend Rob is is a bit of an officiado of the Morris Miner. He's got a, an early 60s one. And he's very, very proud of the fact that it still farts when he changes gear. It's got, it's got such character. He absolutely loves this thing. There's a picture of him, actually, that I was with him at the, um, the recent uh, car do... Up here in uh, Ockham, there's some photos on the website and there's Rob standing there proudly next to his car. So have a look through next time you're on the website and you'll see him looking as proud as punch. Very individual sound and you're absolutely right. Any noise that cars make these days tends to be um, sort of engineered in to give it character rather than it being a natural byproduct of the car itself. Yeah, so yeah, the the farting and the pops and bangs is uh, is mapped into cars and you think, well, hang on, we, we've gone a bit backwards here. Why do you have to engineer all of that in why can't it just do it ordinarily but i guess that's co2 for you isn't it well you didn't like my rs focus for that did you it was just it was really predictable as you were shifting up and down through the gears yeah it was if if you change gear slowly it was pop 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 if you change gear quickly it was pop pop and you could it was just metronomic in its precision there's no no variability to it let's go back to the morris thousand i had three of those and they were all a delight, even though I spent as much time under them as I did driving them. But they were all treasure. Let's be honest, some things that are the best things in life, you spend as much time under them as you do uh, <laughs> otherwise. What was, her, what was her name again? Harriet would be yours, wouldn't it? I did spend a reasonable amount of time under Harriet. I think I spent more time in her, and quite a lot of the time we were out on road trips, so it wasn't just me. There was me, another man, and two women in Harriet. Really Excellent. good. We were topless most of the time as well, which was even better. <laughs> Absolutely superb. Always living life a little bit dangerously. We've spoken about many things whilst we've been off air this week. And the, the, the chat has been alight with um, excitement about the fact that the M23 is now open, which is, hooray, a smart motorway. And we all decided that we don't like them. 
Nope, I don't like them at all. I, I, this last few days I've driven uh, the M3, uh, the M1 where that's been widened, the M25 where that's been widened, and the M4 where that's been widened. And it's a disaster, all of it. It's, it's, I've seen breakdowns in places where you couldn't possibly have them. I've seen, and I don't know whether anybody else has noticed this that drives, does a lot of motorway driving. The refuges are incredibly short. Now, if you're trying to enter one of those refuges at any sort of speed and you are in the process of having a bit of a problem, um, there's an awful lot of heavy braking marks at the beginning of them. Uh, and I noticed it uh, on the M4, I noticed it on the M25, and I didn't see any yet on the M23, but no doubt it will happen. There aren't enough refuges, and they are too far spread, and they're simply too short. And if Carlos Sainz can't manage it, then how the rest of us got any hope? <laughs> exactly so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he made a bit of a disaster of that, didn't he? But, you know, if you're entering them at, at sort of 40, 50 miles an hour, that's difficult enough in a car. If you're entering them at 50 with 40-ton load behind you, it's hardly a surprise that on quite a few of them, the bollards at the end appear to be missing <laughs> because people have swerved in and swerved out. Yeah, I'd certainly be entering with skid marks. I mean, I think we all agree they are bloody dangerous, really. I mean, we've seen some, some pretty stupid stuff. I mean, Jim and I, we were heading off the motorway. We saw someone stop in the lane because he wanted to put his roof up because it started to rain absolutely ridiculous but just the, the sheer danger and if you've seen what happens to something like an aa van or an rac van or something similar when they hit up the back by someone who's fallen asleep even when there is a hard shoulder or someone that's not they generally do what they call the lifesaver put the wheels on lock so when they get hit it knocks the van out the way um hopefully slows down whatever it is it's about to hit them uh, and doesn't doesn't hit them and crush them because it, it is more dangerous than I think you can possibly appreciate. You don't, don't realise quite how fast everything's coming along past you until you are stuck on the hard shoulder. And this is, I was following a uh, RS Turbo some years up. We were on our way up to a show and we were stopped on the M25. And when you have a car that's jacked up on one of a, a tiny little flimsy jack to try and get yourself, you know, a wheel put on, get yourself going. It is terrifying how fast and the air pressure from something like a lorry is enough to knock a car off the jack. It really is a lot worse than it seems. And by completely removing the facility of a hard shoulder, someone's going to come ploughing up behind you, assuming that uh, someone spotted you, shut the lane down, everything else. People will still head along in that lane because, oh, there's traffic in the other few lanes and I can drive along here. We've, we've, seen, we've all seen it. You can start the motorway. And some selfish twat has decided it's a good idea to come along the left-hand side of you, up the hard shoulder, and then all the traffic stops and all the ambulances or recovery trucks and everything else can get through. So if you are one of those people, stop it. <laughs> but is, that, uh, is it a bit like um, uh, the good old tactic of decriminalising something in order to make the crime rates look better? So every twat drives up the hard shoulder anyway, so we might as well make it legal to drive up the hard shoulder. Mm. I think I, I, I rank people in the same category as the people that leave trolleys in supermarkets and are too bone idle to go and put them back, or people that uh, don't bother with masks because I'm okay, actually. All that kind yeah, of nonsense. You don't get a quid back every time you come off the motorway, do you? Perhaps you should. Perhaps that would be a good idea, Tom. I would I'm quite happily insert a quid in somebody every time they did that. 
then end up doing the same thing. The ones that really annoy me, and I I particularly noticed this twice the other day returning, uh, were the lane four, the fast lane, if you want to call it that, on the motorway was uh, was closed off, coned off. And despite the warnings, at minus 10 yards, people were still trying to squeeze in. Mm. Yeah, it is ridiculous. Anyway, we're going to get too irritated and angry about this. And we're all decided it's a terrible idea, a considerable waste of money. You might as well just make the motorway wide and just be done with it. I'm quite convinced whoever designed the system for the M4 didn't take into account the fact that all the bridges are too narrow. There were a lot of crossings over the M4 and everyone has had to have a new bridge and all of the uh, road connections to whatever road it was that the new bridge is being joined up to. So they've built a new bridge next to the old bridge uh, and then they close the motorway each weekend, demolish some of the old bridges. But then they've got to build the roads to them. And it's just been nightmarish. I got caught up there recently on one of their closures and was probably 40 miles on a diversion. It would have been quicker to go on the M40 rather than the M4 and cut back, but there you go. Just poor planning, stupid people, politicians and economists, and um, absolutely no thought for the 40 billion or so that we give them to play with these things every year. But they've given it back to everyone in furlough, so it's, uh, it's all evens now, so we should be happy. <laughs> This is another problem, isn't it? And this is, you've got your motorway issues and everything else. I was going along the A27, absolutely fine, no problem at all. Go over the top of the brow of the hill and there's a JCB driving along. No way possibly knowing it's there until you go over the top of the hill. Everyone's doing 60, 70 miles an hour and then he's doing 30. But that's, of course, why you, uh, you stick to the golden rule, which is only drive as fast as you can see to stop, which, uh, of course, you remember from day one of being taught how to drive. And you were sticking to that at the time, weren't you? I, I was fine. It was everyone else that had come flying over the hill. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's everyone that piles into the back of you, isn't it? Yes. That's, I mean, to be honest, I don't know if the, the JCB would particularly notice if something went piling into the back of the lower part of it. But there you go. No, I don't think it would. I, I saw a very uh, weird and certainly very unpleasant incident some years ago on the M23 going south. And this was, a, a, I think, a breakdown truck had stopped to rescue somebody, or stopped to rescue a vehicle. And somebody came barreling along and rode up the back of the truck and took about three feet off the right-hand side of the cab as he exited. And uh, whether, the, whether the driver, I think the driver was out of it at the time, fortunately, but uh, he's got to be going pretty fast to ride up and along and then exit through the front of the cab. Didn't do anybody a lot of good. I was with a transport driver who was unloading some cars the other day and he shared with me a story that his trainer told him. Um, and he was unloading on the side of the road, as they generally do, the ramps are down, and we all have that moment where we think, GTA. And you could just go straight up the back and jump over the top of it. Um, but this uh, woman had come flying along the road, obviously wasn't paying any real attention, drove the complete way up the back of the transporter, managed to stop before, just before she hit the car that was behind the back of the cab. And the bloke that was unloading the transporter, right, he said, what the hell are you doing, you idiot? 
because obviously if he'd been stood there, it could easily have killed him. And she just wound up the windows, locked the door and sat there crying for 45 minutes before she would open the window to talk to anybody. I think I'd have, uh, <laughs> I'd have strapped the car down in, uh, in the normal fashion and just driven back to the depot, to be totally honest. I think that would have been the best thing for all concerned. Uh, drop her off at an eye test on the way. How can you not see it? And once you've done it, just how? Just how? On the phone, not concentrating, half asleep, picking nose, not giving a shit about anything else going on further than about a foot in front of you. It's the usual story, isn't it? And that's just an extreme example. The frightening thing is we can all tell extreme examples that we've all seen. And it's just, yes. you know, the standard of driving gets worse, not better. And some, and some less extreme examples, and you think, oh, you understand how it happens, but there's just one of those moments. Last week... Uh, I was in the car, in a car park. We decided I stopped with someone with my little boy and we were going to go and stop and have a bit of lunch, look at the boats along the, the side of this marina. An old couple came in and they turned around a corner to go into a disabled bay, <clears throat> suddenly had a car rev up. Then there was an almighty bang as she mounted the curb, hit the back of a lifeboat station and rolled the car over with her husband inside. So then you have that, that awkward moment of trying to peel somebody out of the car um, unfortunately quite difficult to pull them both out whilst holding a baby and I did eventually get some help from the fire brigade uh, and a few other passers buying gawkers who I managed to rope in to help but you just it's one of those moments that you just think I can't understand how it's happened but how has that happened just you know from going that slowly to being on your roof well usually it's it's mistaking the pedals isn't it it's it's the lack of reaction time and then slamming the the wrong pedal to the floor and then just going well i'm in for the ride now and away you go and the next thing you know you're on you're on the roof and they're shredding your license and telling you it's taxis and buses for you now my darling yes bless her i mean she to be fair she was more concerned about the fact that she hadn't squashed anybody and i'm pleased she hadn't because i was stood on the other pavement at the time buying a ticket so quite conceivably she could easily have done it but it was just a case of, of mistaking it. It was the because I saw the whole thing happen, obviously, but such a low it, speed accident. It's often the case of of uh, older drivers who suddenly switch to an automatic, and and I have a, a a bit of a grievance that they'll go into a dealership, they'll buy an automatic, and I think the onus is upon the dealership to explain the difference in the pedals and that isn't always the case and sometimes uh well, I've, I've known several accidents which is just a case of getting the wrong pedal and continuing to press it harder and harder and harder. and it's not the brake pedal it's not the clutch <laughs> hello pedal. sir are you an idiot no i've been driving for 70 years yeah i know but I'm, I'm... pushing the owners back onto the dealership there i mean uh, yeah you've probably got a point i mean if only there was a uh, a, a body perhaps a, a government government-run body that that could give or, could, well, I don't know, could, could maybe examine people in a way uh, to see whether they're fit to drive. Or, or, yeah, and, and then almost give you a, a, a bit of paper or some sort of certification to, to be able to drive. I, I can't think what you'd call that, that whole process and, and that government body. So, I don't know, if, if you've got any ideas on, on, how, uh, on how we could, uh, could possibly test... Uh, examine drivers maybe and give them a, a, a permit or a, a license if you will to drive then um, uh, then do write to us yes if you're changing from a manual to an automatic and, and and you've been driving a very very long time i think there needs to be some sort of re-education process okay maybe not a test at the at the end of it 
but somebody needs to take responsibility. Test. Driving yeah. test. There we are. We've just cracked it. That's, that's exactly <laughs> what we're looking for. I think, I'm sure people shoot me down, by all means, right, just at UK Motor Talk, uh, Towers, PO Box, whatever it is. But I genuinely think for the first six years or so after you passed your license, passed your test, you should uh, every couple of years have a competency test just to make sure that you're OK. Because you can you can do an intensive set of lessons and pass your test in the summer and never see rain or snow or dark or whatever. And in fact, this happened to a friend of mine who was terrified of driving in the dark and she just she just wouldn't drive in the dark. Ridiculous. And I should th- I think that every five years you should have a competency test and a medical because that would rule out the whole problem. And then when you get to 70, it should be every two years again. Okay, because okay. let's face it, st- what a, statistically, if you are going to start to have deteriorating health, it's more likely to happen as you get older, because that's just the way the human body works. So. And there are plenty of people that are terrible drivers of all ages. So by doing this, A, it would discourage people that don't, probably don't need to be driving of whatever age they are from doing it anyway and it might just be half an hour in a car with an instructor and they say yeah okay you understand how to drive still that's fine but i've had to have this conversation with people before now and say look it's probably time you give up and it is an awkward conversation to have it's probably a conversation for the families to have and a lot of them are terrified of doing this one of my next door neighbors some years ago her her dad couldn't feel his feet anymore but still insisted on driving an automatic would he be able to react if a kid, and this is the acid test for me, if a kid ran out in the road in front of me to pick up a ball or something, would I be able to react fast enough to maybe give them a chance? The answer is yes. Is that the case for everybody? I don't think it probably is. Um, no, I quite and agree. I think the people that stamp on throttles and brakes, if their reactions are good enough, you probably can step off of the throttle, even if you do panic. I just, I think it's, yeah, if, you, if you're doing something like that, it's probably, admittedly, there'll be some honest accidents, you know, your foot slips off rather than whatever, I don't know. But I, I think it's probably time to reconsider your position. I, I think you've just got to be honest with yourself. I mean, I'm uh, not far off 70 now. In fact, I'm 70 next year. And I, 20 years ago, I'm, I'm sure I said to myself, I'm going to stop driving at 70, I won't be safe. And I find I, I'm on any drive, and I do still enormous drives i'm continually reassessing the way i'm driving uh, to to try and catch myself if you like that that maybe it is time that i that i stop i don't think i've reached that that time yet but there was a uh i think it was gem that came up with an idea a couple of years ago which i thought was a rather good one uh, for people of my age and perhaps a little older was that you count up the number of near misses you've had every year and when you get to, say, 10 near misses a year, perhaps that's the time to bail out and send them back your licence and perhaps ask for a refund, which you won't get. But, you know, it is... It is uh, and David, uh, you know, has just done the, the IAM. I did the IAM. I did that uh, quite a long time ago. And I would like to think I'm still maybe a bit better than the average driver. But then if you look at the survey recently... Um, everybody thinks they're better than the average driver, which makes you wonder who the average driver is, doesn't it? I don't think I profess to ever be better than an average driver, to be honest, but I I feel quite comfortable that I can control a vehicle okay, and if someone ran out in front of me, I'd be able to stop. And, you know, I've I've been in cars with drivers of, of, I say, of all different ages, of varying different competencies, and I've been in cars with people in the 90s, and they've been absolutely superb. 
you know, there's perfectly safe, no problem at all. And I, I don't doubt that there are lots of very safe, very confident drivers that have been driving a long time. I also think there are lots of people out there who have uh, never been in an accident, uh, but have seen a lot of them in the rearview mirror. Um, and some people that terrify the living crap out of me. <laughs> I've been driving them. I don't mean that in a good way. Some people that are young, middle-aged, whatever, and just massively overconfident in their abilities. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Some people that are overconfident in their capability and just really should stop driving. But yeah, you know, it happens, isn't it? The only thing that's avoided uh, me having a lot of accidents is uh, is my pride and, uh, and care I take in my vehicle. So if I can see somebody driving like an idiot and I know they're not paying attention, then I'll, uh, I'll hang back. The only exception to that, of course, is uh, when I was driving around in your old Volvo when I was, uh, I was almost actively looking for bad drivers just to say, OK, well, th- there's one way you'll learn not to uh, change lanes at the last minute without indicating at a roundabout, <laughs> and that's to get a, uh, a couple of tonnes of, uh, of beige Volvo in your side door, and that'll, uh, that'll soon sharpen your mind. Perhaps that's why I'm still driving a Volvo. <laughs> there is no finer battering ram, is there? No, indeed not. It's one, one absolutely brilliant car. The only thing that puts the fear of God up a white van man. Moving swiftly on to other things that we were talking about that are maybe more exciting in the traditional sense. Maybe not. I think what we've managed to do is reveal true levels of geekery that we didn't know that we had before or maybe we did but we didn't want to admit to each other and we were uh, talking on our whatsapp chat about expensive cars that nick bits from cheaper cars now we see this in groups where you have i don't know fiat in for example in all of the italian makes and you might have i don't know audi and lamborghini and such now um, but there are some that are a bit surprising aren't there Yes, this this is more than uh, than just the badge engineering, as you say, where you take the um, take the engine cover of a VW off and you've got an Audi stamp underneath it, etc. This is um, yeah more uh, more unusual, more what you might view as uh, as upmarket cars nicking parts off uh, off much lower cars. Wholesale theft, I think, is the word, isn't it? Or expediency. Now, I have to admit that nobody was better at this than David. This is, this, I'm, I bow down to your, your levels of geekery when it comes to, to identifying some of these parts. You came up with some absolute yeah, crap yeah. yeah, well, I mean, this was sparked, I think, by the fact that we saw a beautifully preserved um, Volkswagen Mark II Scirocco parked up at our local Wix in Guildford. And this thing is a G-Reg. I'm looking at a picture of it now. It was absolutely immaculate. It had the, the optional BBS alloys. It was beautifully preserved this thing but the back of it as soon as i looked at the back of it and saw its long you know as as was the fashion in those days long strip of tail lights instantly drew me towards the car that i i put out the the question i think it was a bright sixpence to the first plucky young fellow who could tell me where that came from and the answer came there was virage the aston virage oh a virage yeah they're they're big at the time so that would have been about 88 89 90 when the virage was was new back in aston's previous incarnation uh, and they weren't averse to nicking stuff mostly from um, parent ford as they became lots and lots of ford 
switchgear in Astons of the era, not least the DB7, which was a part spin special. I mean, that you can, I'll hand it over to the rest of you because you all know this one as well as me. But I mean, the one that I'll lead in with was the um, door handles from a Mark One MX5 stroke Miata, depending on which side of the pond you're on, uh, which obviously Mazda part owned or fully owned now by Ford at the time. Um, and there's plenty more where that came from. Oh, yeah, it is. I mean, famously, it's a, a Jag underneath, isn't it? It's an XK. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it's not even really an Aston Martin underneath. And the bits plastered on top of this, and Ford are absolutely brilliant at taking another automotive brand and ruining it. Um, <laughs> so they managed to do the same with Land Rover uh, as well as, as Jaguar. And it's only really when they've been passed into Indian ownership. I mean, Mazda, they did quite a lot for the, the dynamics of the drive and took the engines from Mazda before they, they disposed of Mazda. That's probably okay. Certainly better than Nissan and Renault. They said about that, the better. But yeah, the the, the, the DB7 is just, like I say, a, a part's been festival. It looks like the dashboard's been sprayed with Ford switch gear. I kind of like them, I have to say. But yeah, even so, I, I don't think that I would spend my own money on one. And more surprisingly is the taillights, aren't they? Because they come out of the... Um... 323, the Mazda 323. Uh, yeah, Mazda, Mazda 323, wasn't it? Although they did have a uh, some, uh, I don't know, glasses, for want of a better word, just a, just a, a bit of rear trim over them like a, to, uh, to a disguise frame the shape to make them look thinner. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it works quite well. I mean, it's nothing if not very cleverly done, the DB7. I mean, if you... Unless you knew what you were looking for and you were a car geek like the rest of us, anyone else would get in and go, oh, this is nice. It's got wood, it's got leather, it's got buttons and things generally work most of the time. Whereas the rest of it are going, that's off a Mazda, that's off a Scorpio. I mean, the the buttons off a Sierra, I think, in in uh, earlier, ver- not the DB7, I think. I think it managed to avoid those, but the, the Vantage, which came after the Virage, it was the sort of testosterone-fueled twin supercharged version. That thing was littered with buttons out of sierras uh granadas all the things of the time um but again the car was greater than the sum of its parts but it's it's a a wonderful bit of ice spy gamery for those of us who are sad enough to want to play but what i don't get is why uh, if if you if you're going to nick bits off uh other cars other makes models manufacturers whatever i that i kind of get you know if uh, especially if you're a, a smaller company and uh, and parts like that are quite in depth to to make to manufacture a quality control very time consuming uh, i don't mind nicking them at all but if you're going to nick switch gear out of something why nick it out of something that's not famed? Uh, and Ford certainly at the time weren't famed for their interior quality, and they certainly aren't these days. Why nick it out of something like that? Why not nick it out of something just that little bit nicer? Uh, you know, if if you want to nick interior switch gear, nick it out of uh, out of a BMW or a Mercedes or something like that, just to get that that nicer bit of quality. Surely the the extra, I don't know. Five pounds, hundred pounds, two hundred pounds, whatever it is, to uh, to change all the switchgear from one manufacturer to another. Surely, in in the grand scheme of things, in uh, in supercar territory, that's that's kind of worth it. Or am I missing the point there? I, I I think you sort of might expect that the technology and the switchgear and you know all the bits and pieces from from more expensive cars might filter down uh, the designer's marketplace but in fact it more often seems to happen the other way up and and supercar designers are, are, are filching you know really cheap and nasty bits out of out of 
budget cars. I, mean, I, I find that quite bizarre. I do wonder if there's a sort of um, Bible of, of parts which is only circulated amongst car designers, <laughs> which is you know, something of the, the rarity value of the Holy Grail. Um, uh, but each of them will have one, and there'll, there'll be you know, supercar designers who are just raiding various people's parts bins. Yeah, Lotus still, uh, still do this. They nick uh, Vauxhall switchgear. And again, Vauxhall hardly fame for their interior uh, quality. But then I think Lotus went even further with it, didn't they? As they nicked, um, nicked the rear lights, uh, I think from a Corolla, maybe? Corolla? Toyota Corolla right. Coupe, yeah. wasn't it? The, yeah, but the last then for, Esprit had those. Yeah, for the Esprit. And then later on when they needed it for, uh, they needed new lights for something else, I think they just turned those lights that they'd already nicked upside down to make them look completely different. <laughs> it's yeah, I mean, it's it's mad. I was like, Aston have been prolific for this throughout the the years. If you look at the Vantages, DB nines, and everything else, all Volvo stuff, including perhaps the worst sat nav I've ever used. Um, and then now they use all Mercedes bits, so they haven't stopped. I mean, they've moved they've moved up the chain a bit. But if you look at the switchgear inside, that's all Merc stuff now, and I suppose it kind of makes sense, Merc engine, everything else. But there's it's it's everywhere. I mean, some small volume manufacturers, as we say, it, you kind of get it. A mate of mine had a, a Noble M12, and at the time, I can't remember if I had a an Escort or a Mondeo, whichever it was. But you could look between the two, and like the the switchgear in the in the centre, all the climate control bits and pieces were out the Escort, and the rest of it was Mondeo. Even the tail lamps were Mondeo. Even Lamborghini are at it, and they had the um, headlamps um, from a Nissan 300ZX in the front of them. So they've they've all nicked bits um, from from lesser well, models, and it's it's quite surprising, isn't it? Well, famously, none other than McLaren weren't averse to a bit of pilfering. I mean, they had wing mirrors off a Citroen CX on the F1, and the rear lights were from the back of a, a Spanish brand of coach, or also used on um, various other commercial vehicles. So, obviously, the numbers add up somewhere along the lines. Or, as you say, Ron Dennis had a copy of that book, Graham, sitting in his um, <laughs> sitting in his office safe, and yeah, he wasn't averse himself to getting getting murray on the phone again don't worry about that just phone up the just phone up the coach company they'll they'll bung us a few they'll keep a few on the shelf for us there's not going to be that many anyway so why go to the expense of making your own even mclaren so yeah perhaps there must be a point at which the numbers don't make it viable but i think they were uh, they were circular so they couldn't be uh, rotated and, uh, and as we said lotus turned some lights upside down but i think uh, invicta nicked uh, real lights off a Passat, didn't they? But then turned them sideways so that the white bit in the middle oh, yes. uh, formed the shape of an eye. So actually, I quite like that because if you turned it sideways, it was an eye for Invicta. So that was uh, that was quite clever. I quite like that. But that's that's the ultimate example of uh, can I copy your homework? Well, yes, just do it a bit different so it doesn't look like we've copied, and you literally <laughs> just turn it sideways and uh, and class that as done. I always thought that yeah, Fiat yeah. 500 lamps would look, as in the, the more recent Fiat 500, with the would look really good sideways on the back of something. Uh, that had that had the look of a, a they could be an Italian sports car lamp, and especially the ones that have the colour coded bit in the centre. I reckon that looked pretty cool. Um, <laughs> and who knows if uh, kit cars aren't really a thing these days, are they? People don't surely do people do some more more modern cars into kit cars. It used to be yeah. Sierras and goodness know what, but there's I'm not sure into- there's too much electrics. I pulled into a pub car park recently, which was having a gathering of caterers, and I couldn't believe 
how much Caterham has moved on since I last looked closely at one. Certainly in, in terms of power, because they're all talking in terms of 350, 400 brake horsepower. You know, that's a very, very lightweight car for that sort of power-to-weight ratio. And certainly um, the newer ones all sensibly had cages, because I sure as hell would want a cage in something with that power-to-weight ratio. Well, it's funny you should yeah, mention. Yeah, funny you should mention Caterhams because I've uh, I've been uh, I've been looking more and more and more at Caterhams uh, over the last couple of weeks. I, uh, I must admit, so I've had a, a lusting for an aerial atom, as uh, regular listeners to the podcast all know. But flicking, uh, you know, fl- flicking through the uh, various websites, looking at adverts for them, you know, they're, they're still just holding their value so well. And I kind of think for the amount that I'd use it, it's a uh, it's a big investment for very minimal use, and, uh, and of course not that practical. So um, thinking of more practical cars, I instantly thought of Caterham Seven. That's that's probably a better idea because it's got a boot and uh, and a windscreen and um, and bodywork to keep your legs dry. So uh, yeah, I thought that that uh, that seemed quite reasonable. Yeah, the uh, the power that some of them kick out is uh, is insane. I must admit, I think if I uh, if I do go for one, it uh, it'll more than likely be a 1.6 Ford engine uh, or maybe even the K series variety. Uh, you know, 150, 160, 170 horsepower, something like that. But in uh, in something that weighs 500 and odd kilos, uh, without me added to it, that's uh, that's probably an adequate amount, I would think. Uh, but also, I was looking around for the practicalities as well, and insurance quotes and uh, bits and pieces like that. So I've got a couple of quotes for uh, for an aerial atom, and they were all coming in at around about a thousand pounds. I mean, I've got twelve, fifteen years, whatever it is, of driving company cars with uh, no accidents claims or anything else like that on it. So uh, that that counts for something. But yeah, the atom was about a thousand pounds to insure. I, uh, I did a quote on a Caterham 7 tonight that had been breathed on quite a bit, and that came in at £219 for the year. So uh, in the interest of practicality and uh, and economics, I, I think I might have to look more seriously at a Caterham from now on. And just auto-testing and skids. Uh, yes, skids as well. So watch this space. Who knows? Uh, I think we might find ourselves driving somewhere across the country to go and pick one up and drive it back. Well, I think it, most importantly, I, I do need to uh, to have a go in one or, or maybe even a few just to make sure that I fit in them okay. So I was sat in the odd one before, but I think that was uh, either the normal body and uh, and without the lowered floors and, it, you know, the steering wheel was touching my legs, etc. I'm not, you know, I'm not the smallest guy in the world, but I'm six foot and uh, and of average build, I would say. So uh, and maybe uh, maybe would benefit from the wider chassis with the lowered floors just so I can fit in it ever so slightly. For your wider yeah. chassis. Yes, I think so. But uh, yeah, renting one is uh, is not a bad idea. So keep an ear out, and if uh, if that's something we go and do, then um, then yeah, we'll uh, we'll report back. As always, we have digressed. Now, there's something that Graham wants to talk about, isn't there? Yeah, we've we've been chatting uh, again between ourselves, and not necessarily making it onto the podcast about some of the more bizarre cars that we see out and about. Uh, and I discovered what appears to be a sort of bizarre car hotspot in Hastings. Sounds about right. Well, it, it, it does. There's, there's somebody there, or more than one somebody, I suspect. I think what, what triggered this a few weeks ago was the Saab 99, which is uh, done entirely in Ferrari red. It's the correct shade of red. It's got as many Ferrari stickers and name badges and so on on it. Does it come with a flake? Uh, I have no idea, but it comes with a. I think there were 
two-cylinder engine, I think they were, in the old 99, so wholly inappropriate sound effects. I then spotted, uh, a week or two later, a, a, an old Morris Oxford, which had had grafted onto it various Mark II Jaguar parts, which I thought was quite interesting. So it was a really bizarre hybrid. Uh, but I saw last week uh, the most bizarre one I've certainly seen in Hastings, which was a dune buggy made out of a jacked MX-5. And that looked really bizarre because it's an MX-5 that's sitting on massive dune buggy tyres and chassis and all the sort of usual stuff. Uh, and God knows how it's powered, probably still powered, uh, like most uh, dune buggies, by a, a, a VW engine with a Mazda MX-5 body. It looked very, very odd. But it then set me thinking about a guy that um, was a master of producing vehicles that, that were road legal but bizarre. Uh, and I do remember he did the double bed, which was entirely road legal, a shed. Which was in China, isn't it? Is it? Yeah, it's in China. Yeah, it sounds like he's done, he's done a sofa, he's done a bathroom well, suite. Yes, he has built some very bizarre cars. But a settee, is, it's a nice idea, I like that. Yeah, settee, yeah, with the, with the steering wheel in front. Um, absolutely brilliant. We saw uh, a dune buggy, this is uh, Jim and I, we were all heading over towards Brighton, and it was coming the opposite direction, it had the Casey spots, and it looked pretty, pretty damn cool. And across the windscreen, if you want to look this up, was hashtag coronabug. <laughs> um, which I think is uh, certainly of its time, isn't it? This, this is now. I presume they built it on lockdown or something, but really cool. And I, I love a proper, a proper buggy. And this looked like the, the sort of sand scorcher. If you if you cast your mind back to the, the sort of Tamiya classics, it had that that sort of vibe to it. Really cool. And you've got to have all the spot lamps and things on it too. I, I also saw on Hot Rod's website uh, a week or so ago. A bunch of lads in California, well, it would be, wouldn't it, had put a blown V8 350 cube Chevy engine in the back of a go-kart. And then they discovered that, that they needed wheelie bars, which were about 15 feet long, to stop the thing just <laughs> flipping backwards every time they hit the throttle. But it looked amazing. I love this. One of the things I'm really getting into at the minute, and I think these are incredible, are people that take a classic body, and admittedly this could be considered quite sacrilege, cut the body off and then drop it onto a modern car. Now I've seen a, uh, someone's took a 198 and they took a previous gen um, 6.3 AMG, so C63 AMG, uh, shortened the chassis and then dropped uh, this 190E body shell over the top and made it an Evo spec but with all the modern interior, all the modern switch gear, and all the modern functionality, so it retained the climate control, it retained even the, the remote central locking and door locks, they grafted into the doors. It was absolutely exceptional, really, really well done. And people have been doing the same with Mustangs, and I saw, admittedly, a slightly rougher um, sort of homebrew affair, uh, a Mark II Jag where someone had taken an XJ, shortened it, and chucked the, uh, the Mark II body on top. I think if you've got something that's perhaps going to go in the bin anyway, it's probably fair to to, to do that to it, to be honest. I mean, admittedly, 190E is not that rare, but something like a Mustang Mark II J, maybe. But what a what a fantastic thing, that taking Resto Mod to the next level and just getting something modern and dropping the body shell on it so you, you get the best of both. It's, it's only when you revisit some of the, the older cars and you, you realise they're not necessarily quite so great 
um, to drive as you remembered. So I, I jumped into an old Mini, and I, I love Minis, as you know, really do love Minis. And as I was bouncing my way along the seafront, I made the mistake of going into a car park with speed bumps. So as you go over, you sort of bounce off the ceiling, bash your head into things. And you kind of think, oh, yeah, I kind of forget how much more refined a modern car is. Interesting when the manufacturers start to do it. And uh, I think what started this process of us discussing it was the the Ferrari 456 GT Venice. So then we got right. on to... Yeah, then we got on to the sort of various shooting brakes and uh, Tiger Hunters. And the the one that... There's a few of them about is the Jaguar Lynx Eventer, which is still looks bizarre to my eyes, but it's... You know, if you want a Jaguar and you want an estate car, that was one way to do it. Uh, and and they were they produced a small number. And Aston Martin, have done a small number as well. I've seen one or two come up for sale over the years. You know, but can you imagine cutting the back off a DB6 and making an estate car of it? There are people who want to do that. More money than sense, I think. I do think shooting brakes are pretty cool. I have to say, but by the time you've you've done that to the back of a four, five, six, and added the extra weight and everything else, I just wonder if you're better off buying something else in the first place. It's a bit of a sort of look what I can do. I've got very, very much much more money than you have, sort of thing, isn't it? And lest lest we forget, all the four, five, six Venices were ordered by the Sultan of Brunei, or at least some of his family. So that should tell you all you need to know. But um, just to go back to the resto mod thing, uh, at the completely the other end of the scale. I've, I haven't read the uh, the whole article, but I just saw in Practical Classics this month that somebody's taken a Morris Minor Traveller and uh, put the running gear from none, no less than the mighty Suzuki Liana underneath it to make it a, a daily driver. And apparently the thing will do 0-60 to 60 in under nine seconds. So even though it's a fairly mundane underpinnings, it will still give people a bit of a bit of a shock when you try and race them off the lights. But why a Liana? I don't know. I'll report back once I've read the report. I think this goes back to our point earlier about if you're going to nick something off uh, off another manufacturer, at least make it exciting. Why nick the underpinnings yeah, off, uh, the off something like that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I, one of the worst cars I've ever driven. Genuinely, I mean, boring. Well, it's a lot more interesting shoved inside a Morris Minor, but at the same time, you wouldn't, would you? Absolutely, no. wouldn't. No, you, you just think anything, anything else. Just buy a Fiesta or something and put it underneath it. It does remind me, a lot of this sort of comes out of uh, hot rods and drag racing and so on and so on. Uh, and we used to run, back in the early mid-80s, uh, a Renault 4, but it was a plastic Renault 4 that we built, a fiberglass Renault 4 that we built, which was two feet longer than standard and two feet narrower than standard. And we ran a blown 350 Chevy in it. Uh, and that was, that was fairly rapid and a lot of fun. There's an awful lot of steel and welding in it, I seem to remember. There is an excellent Granada that's kicking around at the moment that has a Koenigsegg engine in it. Um, <laughs> and that's just absolutely mad. And there was, I can't remember who it was, I think it was Anton Deck borrowed it and turned up at a car meet just in, in uh, disguise as, as a, an old man and an old woman. And then just started doing massive donuts and, and you know, big burnouts and things at this car, which I think is absolutely hilarious. I, I think really, truly, what a great car to do it in. Uh, but sleepers are, will always be cool, won't they? I mean, cars yeah, are too right. Yeah, I mean, sleepers just are cool. Well, I speak as somebody who drives one, and it's um, it never ceases to amuse when you sort of drop the Audi that's glued to your rear bumper. 
and they go, what the hell was that? That's a minicab. And you just sort of wave them goodbye and they, then they sort of scream up trying to work out what it was and you just dawdle along. It's, it's, it never, ever gets old, that. Never. <laughs> the old T5 Volvos were great for this, weren't they? Yes. Oh, too so right. They were. Kind of the first of the, of the proper... I think they really were a proper sleeper. And to be honest, when I was a kid, you could afford to insure those because I they seemed to fall through an insurance gap and it was absolutely superb. He got away with it for ages. But at the college I went to, there was no student parking. It was staff only. And one of the students had one of these and he just used to park it in a staff car park and no one mattered than I did. And he must have got away with it for a year before they noticed. But because they were just not the kind of car boy racers would buy, you could buy them and insure them. And they were they were great because, you know, you could fit a double mattress in the back or whatever if you wanted. But nevertheless, what a fantastic car. Um, and a, and a great sleeper as well, and that's obviously a, a factory sleeper. That's why the, the the Volvo T5s were so attractive to police forces around the country because mm. that could chase almost anything with that. But it looked completely innocuous, and I, I think when they when they first took the Volvos racing, Tom Walkinshaw wasn't it, who they discovered that the estate was actually aerodynamically slipperier than the saloon. Um, and the yep. first ones that they ran in testing, they had a fiberglass uh, Labrador in the back, <laughs> purely for effect. <laughs> well, just just going on from what the um, from the police when they moved on, moved away from Volvos, or and obviously nowadays it's all it's all BMWs, pretty much wall to wall. But in the past, they've had some some other interesting things. Uh, another favourite of the police was the the Mark One. Uh, Skoda Octavia VRS because mm-hmm. that thing again just looked like a minicab and particularly in a plain wrapper i.e. A, an unmarked one that thing could come sneaking up behind you before you even knew what was going on and then lit up like a Christmas tree and you're having a word at the side of the uh, side of the motorway which you obviously can't do now because there is no hard shoulder to get back to that point but follow you to the <laughs> exactly yes could you put your foot down we're in a bit of a dangerous position here all right officer Sir, if you say so, no. The um, they've they've used some very interesting stuff around here. There's some um, quite sneaky things doing the rounds. There's there's a couple of um, very very dull looking um, Ford Focuses. No offense to Ford Focus or Foci, if that's the uh, the plural. Which again have lights crammed into every orifice, and they they sit there waiting for the unwary. But the best one I ever saw. This is this will tell you how long ago this was. Uh, it was on the A3. It was a Rover SD1. So that, again, will tell you how long ago this was. It was must be late 80s, this was. It was an unmarked Rover SD1, which had one of those stick-on Garfields with the suckers on the paws that was stuck on the inside of the windscreen. <laughs> we saw that thing take off after a very yuppie-spec BMW 325 up the A3, caught up with it, and we basically were trundling along the A3, saw it at the side of the road. This rover even then lit up like a Christmas tree and this poor sod stood there scratching his head going, what the hell just happened here? And uh, yeah, that was score one for the team. That was hugely amusing. Well, I think they should have, uh, the police should have cars like that to uh, to put people off. I mean, was, uh, I think the Italian police had a uh, Lamborghini Gallardo a few years back, didn't mm. they? But actually the uh, the British mm. police have had some uh, some fairly mental bits of, I'm just flicking through, and, uh, and they've had a Lamborghini as well. Uh, and I think at one point they had uh, a favourite of mine, an Aerial Atom. And you think there's 
there's <laughs> no no hardly any chase scenario that's going to end up with a car getting away from an aerial atom. So if uh, if you've got to have a car for chasing around people in, then uh, then get something quick. But I think they've had Mustangs, they've had uh, BMW M2s, and uh, why not? Well, Sussex Police had an Exige. I remember they had two. They had one that was stickered up, which they used to take to car shows and things to try and discourage people. And then they had a, an undercover one, which was which was crazy. But the, one of the ones that always made me chuckle around here, there was a black BMW. I think it was an 07 plate. But the last three digits of the reg were FTP. Whoever registered that car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That is inspired, isn't it? Well, the Met Police in the very early 90s, because the Met Police garage wasn't far from where I lived at the time, near the A3, just near Tolworth, uh, which used to be Cooper Garages, actually, fact fans, um, yeah. but uh, back in the day, and Brabham at one point, I believe. But that, no, that was interesting. To, anyway, sorry, boring, boring. Um, they had on loan, long-term loan from Porsche GB, they had a white 968 Club Sport, which used to prowl the A3, and it didn't have a blue light on the roof, apart from when they used to mag-mount it Kojak-style. But this thing, you could quite often, you'd be driving down the A3, and it'd come blatting past you at a rate of knots. And it had the then sort of, jam sandwich the met police had like an orange and yellow stripe down the side and the crown on the side and see that thing come belting past you at well in excess of a ton was quite fun i I had a really weird experience which sounds completely unbelievable but is actually really quite true and i used to drive an st220 modern day which was one of the ones that the interceptors used to like to use Um, and it was in the right time it was the same color as the the police one I was driving home, I used to work at Gatwick, and I was coming down the M23 one day, and I was, uh, I'd overtaken something and moved over, and I suddenly saw two police bikes come up behind me, and I thought, okay, that's, that's unusual. So I'd gone past this car, and they'd come alongside me, then they moved in front of me, and I moved over, and they moved over with me. Then two more police bikes came up and sat behind me. And we ended up going down in this weird convoy. And every time I changed lane, they changed lane with me, all the way the M23. So whether it's just a complete case of mistaken identity or whether they were just doing it just for shits and giggles, I will never know. But honestly, it was one of the most bizarre experiences because people just get out of your way. Regardless of the fact they didn't have the lights on or anything else, we were just driving straight down, but in, in perfect convoy. Um, I ended up in my own little, uh, with my little sort of police escort. Very, very bizarre. I can't ever imagine it happening again, but yeah, just who knows? Who knows? Did they just figure out someone else or? Confused.com. Yeah. Training exercise, I would suggest. Yes. Everything's always a training exercise, isn't it? Weather balloon or a training exercise. It could be either. Yeah. They commonly are training exercises. I I got caught out some years ago on the M25 uh, in in a three unmarked car police chase. And uh, I was... Yeah, just above seven. Were they chasing uh, you? No, there, there was there was <laughs> somebody who somebody who was going from my lane dived off in front of me uh, and kept changing lanes. Went all the way left on, onto the hard shoulder, all the way back again, with three unmarked cars with everything going, uh, chasing him and me, just trying to keep out the bloody way because uh, it was all getting just a little hairy. I've been fortunate enough to to drive a number of of different unmarked vehicles over the years um for for a variety of different reasons um and some of them are absolutely superb and for obvious reasons i can't tell you too much about the specific details but 
but some of them are um are absolutely incredible and even stood right next to the thing you would never know you would never know um what they are but they, there are some superb vehicles that are currently in service and presumably out of service as well but uh, the temptation to press a button i mean obviously you, you couldn't do because you'd be instantly um reprimanded but the temptation when you get someone just being a knob in front of you just to press the uh the woo-woos uh just to see what would happen is so it is so tempting uh, i will always remember that uh a police sergeant you just do it you're fine don't worry about it and you think, no, I'm not, it is, I'm not, i can't i could do without that kind of encouragement thank you Well, I hate to say it, guys, but Graham is running on empty, which means it is time for him to fill up on wine. So on that note, it really is time for us to end. So it's from me, Mike, good night. From me, Jim, good night. From me, Graham, uh, yes, I am going to go for a glass of wine, and thank you very much, but I'm not driving. <laughs> and I don't think I'll be far behind you, Graham. Good night from me, though. See you. Unless you're listening in the morning, in which case, have a nice day. Bye. Whenever. UK Motor Talk, a first take media production.